Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ziva Cooper. Ziva is the director of the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative and associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA. Her research involves understanding variables that influence both the therapeutic potential and adverse effects of cannabis and cannabinoids in humans. Ziva and I talked about a lot of the latest research going on in this area, including ongoing experiments to understand the potential interactive effects between major and minor cannabinoids and specific terpenes, what we know and don't know about the effects of cannabidiol, CBD, on humans, and how THC can have different effects on people depending on things like their sex or their age. As always, if you enjoy this content, please do support us. The major ways you can support the podcast are to become a patron on Patreon. We have a a page there under Good Chemistry. You can subscribe to the video podcast on YouTube, or you can download and leave a review for the audio podcast in iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, here's my conversation with Ziva Cooper. Ziva Cooper, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nick. It's wonderful to be here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, how are you doing? And how how are you? Uh, well, how are you doing with uh, COVID and everything? You're in New York, right? No, actually, I moved from New York a couple of years ago, so I'm in Los Angeles. Um, so you know, it's it's a big change for me. I was in New York for about 13 years, and uh, haven't. I think my last trip was to New York about a year ago, and you know, we, we've been grounded the whole time. So um, thank you for asking. Things are going well. Thankfully, Los Angeles is looking up now. And you can't complain about the weather here. So there's that. <laughs> Great. Can you tell people a little bit about what you're doing at UCLA and what your scientific background is, just so people know where you're coming from? Yeah. So I'll first start off with my scientific background, and then I'll talk about how I ended up at UCLA. Um my scientific background, even though most people I think know me for work in humans, I actually uh, received a degree in biopsychology at University of Michigan. And my, my doctoral work was really concentrating in preclinical models of substance use disorders. Um, so, you know, I did studies with rodents and I specifically concentrated on opioids at the time. And I looked both at the analgesic effects of opioids as well as the negative effects. So substance use related negative effects of opioids in, in animals. What is analgesia? Um, thank you for asking. So analgesia is pain relief. Uh, and, you know, we know that opioids are very good pain relievers, but they're also negative effects. And so I was really looking at both of those um, in animals. And it's interesting. I, I feel like I haven't really strayed very much from that overall theme. In 2007, I moved to Columbia University to get training uh, from my postdoctoral fellowship on how you can administer psychoactive substances um, like opioids uh, to people under a very controlled situation so that we can actually study the effects of substances in people rather than um, looking at changes in population levels or um, looking at indirect effects of substance use in people over time. So it's a very unique type of laboratory where you can actually administer a controlled substance to people 
and be able to measure very specific effects. So how does this substance affect your heart rate? How does it affect your mood? Um, how is it metabolized in your blood? And how are those effects compared to placebo? So mm -hmm. in other words, like a sugar pill. Um, and during that time at Columbia, I became very close with one of my mentors who was studying cannabis. Um, and that kind of led me into the world of cannabis and cannabinoid research. And I think part of the reason why I was drawn to human research of cannabis and cannabinoids was because at the time, um, again, it was 2007. So California had already legalized cannabis for a while for medical purposes. They had legalized in 1996 mm -hmm. and other states were coming on board. And there was a, a lot of talk about the therapeutic effects of cannabis. And I realized that there really wasn't very, there weren't very many placebo controlled studies in the area that looked both at these, you know, the therapeutic effects as well as the adverse effects. And so it seemed like a pretty significant gap in knowledge there and so many questions to ask um, that could be answered in the setting I was in. Um, I continued doing some opioid research as well, and, and I'm still doing some of that right now. And so that's kind of my, my background as to how I got involved in this field. Um, so you asked me what I'm doing now. So I moved to UCLA about two years ago. UCLA started a initiative when cannabis for adult use became regulated mm -hmm. or legalized. Um, it became um, legalized in about 2016, and then they implemented the laws in 2018. And it was clear that with this regulation, where we had medical use and non-medical use that was legal, there is going to be an uptick in availability of cannabis products and most likely use as well by patients and non-patients. And there were going to be a lot of questions that needed to be answered not just about like how the policy changes impacted use and um, you know public health parameters, but also a lot of questions that a lot of patients would probably be having, you know, asking their physicians about you know can they use this product or that product for this indication, and also about some of the negative effects as well. What does it mean that a diverse array of products would soon be available to people? more accessible to people. And so the initiative was founded in uh, late 2017. I came on board as the research director. Um, so at the time, UCLA didn't have very many controlled drug administration studies of cannabis. Um, there's actually a, his a deep history of UCLA doing this type of work, but there weren't that many investigators. So you might have heard of like Don Tashkin, who's a famous pulmonologist, um, and Mike Roth, also a pulmonologist, who was doing some of these studies looking at the impact of cannabis use on respiratory health. But apart from that, very very few people did this work, and it's it's hard work to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you you got to know all the regulatory hurdles, how to get funding, how to store the drug, where to get the drug, and so I came on board to help kind of um, pioneer this type of research. Um, and then about a year later, I became the director of the Cannabis Research Initiative. And it's really great because um, Los Angeles, you know, it's no secret 
that the cannabis industry is blooming here. There are billboards on my way to work. There are all types of products that are emerging in the health food stores. And indeed, patients are constantly being bombarded by questions from their patients and people in public health have their questions as well. And so I entered into a situation where people from all over campus, whether they were legal scholars or people interested in public policy or public health or physicians, were really excited to do this work and engage in a collaborative research enterprise. And so we have about 100 faculty from across the campus who are engaged in this research now. And it's been really, really exciting two years. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, see, to seeing how it, how it grows in the future. And is this UCLA research initiative, is that encompassing all forms of research or is it focused on human clinical? Yes. So my lab, the um, Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research Laboratory, is very focused on the controlled drug administration components. And so, you know, I have a laboratory that is cleared to have people smoke and vaporize and use cannabinoids orally. And so we can do those nice double blind placebo controlled studies. We also have most of my studies are actually with healthy volunteers where I'm probing, you know, different variables that impact the effects of cannabis on the body and the brain. And then we also have studies with patients. Um, so patient uh, studies where we're looking at specific diseases. Um, and then we also have, again, a grants in um, public policy. Um, we have grants doing neuroimaging studies where the products aren't being administered, cannabis isn't being administered, but we're looking at activation in certain brain regions when people are exposed to cues associated with cannabis. And there's, so there's really a wide range of research that's happening. Um, and we also have preclinical research as well. So people who are doing rodent studies. So, um, you know, it seems like... I, I feel like, you know, when you're in graduate school or, or when you're in a certain situation, you're always told to focus and make sure that you, when you do something, you do something right. You don't go out all over the place. Um, but I have to say at UCLA, I'm in this unique position where the faculty from all different areas of expertise are excited to do this work. And, you know, I, of course, have my area that I'm good at. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I have epidemiologists or we have epidemiologists as part of the initiative who are eager to tackle that part of the research. And so it's great. You know, we can do a lot of a lot of work here in Los Angeles that I think um, is appropriate to be done here. Just because, again, the industry, it's really hard to ignore the fact that it's growing here and that there are a number of people who are using these products for a range of different indications. And I think that might be different in other states, um, you know, some, you know, in the Midwest where the regulation hasn't happened yet um, or where the industry isn't as prevalent. Um, so it's an exciting opportunity. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I wanted to ask you towards the beginning is there's a lot of different types of people interested in medical cannabis. And each of those different cohorts of people that you could talk about, I think, use and imagine something different when they, when they use a phrase like medical cannabis or cannabis as medicine. On maybe one side of the spectrum, you've got clinical researchers who have a very specific thing in mind when they use the word medicine. And then maybe on a different side of the spectrum, you've got activists who refer to other types of cannabis consumption as medicine. So I just wanted to ask you, what 
is medicine? How do you define it and what counts and doesn't count? Um, you know, I don't think it's up to me to, to make that definition or to say that I am, I am not a physician. Um, and I, I feel like when, when we do survey studies, for instance, um, we ask people, do you use cannabis for a medical reason and, or do you use for a non-medical reason? And it's really up to them to Mm self-report how they feel like they are using cannabis. I'm not asking them if they have a medical cannabis card or if they have a physician who's giving them a a recommendation. It's their self-report about this. Now, how do those surveys that are very meaningful and important to get give us a sense of how people are using these products in the community and for what reasons, how do those surveys translate to medical practice mm-hmm. is complicated. Um, and so, you know, when I have conversations with the physicians, let's say at UCLA or, or other healthcare systems, you know, they, they really struggle um, not all of them, but you know, this is a, a common theme where cannabis and the endocannabinoid system isn't necessarily taught in medical schools. And so, when when patients get questions from, wait, I'm sorry, when physicians get um, questions from patients, they're really not sure as to how to guide them mm-hmm. um, and how to inform them. And I think that in places like UCLA and other you know medical universities. Physicians hang their hat on evidence-based approaches, right? Um, And so data that depicts how cannabis or how these cannabis-based products can be used under rigorous controlled conditions. So in a study where the placebo is being compared to the active cannabis or cannabinoid, I feel like those studies are really helpful and important in informing physicians and and public health as to not just if a certain product or a cannabinoid is helpful for a certain indication for a medical use, but also it's importantly, it's safety, right? Um, So, you know, to circle back to your question, what is medical cannabis? I think it probably depends on the professional that you talk to and the individual. Um, and it's really, I think it's really up to when you're having a conversation with a community member and they say that they're using medical cannabis, you know, that's, they're explaining how they view their, their medical cannabis use, mm-hmm. their cannabis use. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's helpful. So it's, it's really a functional perspective. It, it's about how someone, the, the patient or who would call themselves the patient is actually using it. They're using cannabis for some reason that they don't view as merely for fun. Right. And I will say that I think that there's a variety of reasons why people use cannabis. I think that sometimes we think about the medical versus recreational, Mm -hmm. but there are other reasons why people use it. So, you know, this um, path to well-being where it's Mm -hmm. necessarily specifically for a medical indication, but um, people are using it because they feel like it enhances their overall well-being. People use it for spiritual reasons. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, there's a number of different reasons why people use cannabis that aren't always explored um, that, you know, and that probably should be explored. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, and they overlap. Uh, you know, there was a study that came out showing that 90% of people who report using cannabis for medical reasons also use it for non-medical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so people can have lots of different motives and reasons for use. 
One of the areas that I definitely want to dig into early on is pain. So one of the most common things people report using cannabis for in terms of a medical application is pain management. So what do we really know about cannabis for pain? And maybe let's kind of zoom in on THC and CBD. What do we know? What do we really know there? And I'm really interested in the potential interaction or replacement that might be the potential for, for cannabis to replace opioids. So can you kind of compare and tra- contrast the cannabinoids and the opioids in, in the context of pain management? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. This is, you know, one of my favorite topics. Um, it's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. And when we think about cannabis and cannabinoids, those chemicals in the cannabis plant as being novel strategies to um, decrease the need for opioid use for pain relief, you hit the nail on the head where, you know, we, we can't think of um, cannabis as just one thing. Um, you know, we have to think about what are the chemicals in the plant that are important in playing this role um, with respect to being able to decrease the need for opioid use or eliminate the need for opioid use completely. Um, and when you look at survey data or when you look at observational studies, there have been numerous studies demonstrating that people are substituting cannabis um, for their opioids, and they're able to decrease their opioid use over time. And that's great. Um, the question is, what type of cannabis are they using? And if this was done in a controlled setting, will we see the same effects? Mm-hmm. What are some of the safety concerns that we just have to think about with respect to, at some point, mixing cannabis with opioids? And that's where I think these controlled studies um, come into play where we're trying to actually understand these different cannabis constituents and how they might be helpful in reducing or eliminating the need of opioids. Um, Now, to first answer that question, I think that you have to figure out if cannabis and these constituents are pain relieving on their own. So forgetting about the opioid question for a second, are they just able to help reduce pain mm-hmm. on their own. And then you can think about, you know, are, will they be helpful in eliminating opioid use? And you can look into what studies have been done in this respect. So I mentioned to you earlier that um, I started off on my professional path in the animal laboratory. And frequently, I, I actually, I always refer to the animal laboratory studies to help inform how I'm going to design my, my clinical studies. And if you look in the animal literature, you see a really nice story with THC specifically. Um, so tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol is the primary psychoactive component of cannabis. And it's the known intoxicating component of cannabis. Um, and it's the most widely studied cannabinoid of the cannabis plant. And when you look at animal studies, THC produces these pain relieving effects in a wide range of models and animal studies. Um, And what's nice also is that there's really nice data showing that when you combine a low dose of THC with a low dose of an opioid that isn't usually pain relieving, and you put the two together, you actually get a synergistic effect in pain relief, such that, you know, if 
THC equals one and an opioid equals one on pain relief. When you put the two together, they'll equal three. Mm -hmm. So there's some really nice rationale for seeing how this could work in people. Now, um, even though those studies were elegantly done in, in animals, they haven't necessarily been fully fleshed out yet in people, which is surprising given the fact that there have been so many reports of people who are now using cannabis and cannabis-based products in lieu of opioids. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we know in humans right now? Let's talk about THC first. Um, we know that based off of whatever meta-analysis you look at, so in other words, a meta-analysis where you're combining data from all these different placebo-controlled studies, um, we know that there is strong evidence, substantial evidence, based on a report that I was associated with, uh, demonstrating that cannabinoids are helpful for chronic pain, mm -hmm. um, which is a, that's a very general big statement to make because there's all different types of chronic pain. Um, and THC has only been studied in, in a couple of these types of chronic pain. So neuropathy is a type of chronic pain that um, it's been shown to have an effect with. What's, what's um, neuropathy? Um, neuropathy is a, is a, uh, it's a type of neurological pain that can happen over time. So people with diabetes can have neuropathy, people with HIV, um, chemotherapy, people who have certain chemotherapy treatments can develop neuropathy over time. And it could feel like tingling or numbness or hotness, burning, cold sensation. Um, and it's it can be incapacitating for, for certain patient populations. And that, this is an area that has been studied with positive results um, with cannabis with THC, as well as other products with THC in them. So, so there have been a number of studies that have demonstrated that cannabinoids might be helpful for chronic pain. Um, now, whether or not that can help decrease opioid use, again, is a kind of a black box at this point. We did a study where we looked at in healthy people, um, we did a study where we looked at how THC can produce pain relieving effects, again, in a healthy population, but we used like a painful test and we saw how people reacted on that painful test when they received cannabis with THC. Mm -hmm. um, and then we looked at the effects of THC on a very low dose of an opioid. So a dose of an opioid that it doesn't usually produce pain relieving effects. And what we saw is we saw significant increases in pain relief when we, had, when we put the combination together. And so that gave a nice signal of what we see in the animal literature, where the one plus one equals three phenomenon. Mm -hmm. That hasn't yet been tested in a patient study um, where you have patients enrolled and you're looking to see if the use of cannabis with THC might help to reduce opioid use over time under a placebo controlled condition. Mm -hmm. And the studies are very difficult to do. And I think that that's part of the reason why it hasn't been done yet. I think that there are certain studies that are going to roll out soon that look at this. Um, but again, there's not just regulatory barriers, but also just study design issues that make it a difficult question to mm -hmm. ask. So we know from animal models that if you combine THC with an opioid, you get the synergistic effect where one plus one can equal three. 
we have reason to suspect something like that could be true in humans because there's so many people who seem to be using cannabis for chronic pain and reporting that they're decreasing their opioid usage, but we haven't yet formally shown with a placebo-controlled study in humans that you get this one plus one equals three effect. In patients, correct. In patients. Yeah. And then you asked about CBD and what do we know about CBD? Um, And so it's interesting because we see that one of the primary reasons why people use CBD is for pain as well. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the literature, um, there's very little information about the effects of CBD by itself Mm -hmm. for pain in humans. You look at the animal literature and there is some really compelling evidence showing that CBD is helpful for certain types of pain in animals. And in fact, one study found a, a synergistic-like effect with opioids and CBD. But in humans to date, as far as I know, there have only been two studies that have looked at CBD by itself for mm-hmm. pain. And those were done about 15 years ago. Um, most studies that have used CBD have included THC as well. And we know that THC has promised for pain. And so we it's hard to suss out mm-hmm. what CBD is necessarily doing. We have a study um, right now at Columbia University that's very similar to the study I just described to you, where we have healthy participants, they come in, they smoke cannabis with THC, we look at their pain response, we see how that THC can synergize with an opioid. In the study that we're doing right now, we're looking at different types of cannabis that have either high amounts of THC, high amounts of CBD, or the two combined. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking at the um, synergistic effects with the opioid. So we're pretty much replicating what we did before, but we're probing CBD here to see if we can get a similar effect with CBD. And so that's CBD. So it's interesting because a lot of people think based off of um, how CBD is is really popular in the market and the things that you hear about CBD and the things that people are reporting about CBD, that they're using it and it's helpful for a condition. Nothing's ever helped them before. But when you go back to the literature, it's, it's shocking to see how little data there has been in this space. Mm-hmm. So... Going back to the animal models where we can dig a little bit deeper than we can in humans, I'm interested in this idea of drug synergy where you can combine two drugs and get this one plus one equals three effect. So you said we've shown that in animals for THC and opioids. Do we know anything about mechanism and what might be going on at like a cellular or receptor level that actually allows that to happen? So there has been some data probing the interaction between THC, between just the opioid system where Mm -hmm. opioids work at and the cannabinoid system where cannabinoids work at. And it's been known for a a while, I would say at least, you know, I I think that there've been even papers since 1995, that there's this kind of bi-directional reciprocity between the opioids and cannabinoid systems for certain endpoints. Um, So for example, for certain endpoints, if you block um, you can create certain behavioral effects uh, or block certain behavioral effects. If you give THC, but you block the opioid receptor, you're going to block THC's effects. 
And if you give an opioid and block the, the cannabinoid receptor, you're going to block the opioid um, effects. And so there is certain degree of reciprocity. And some of that has been worked out in the behavioral field. Um, so looking at pain relief, looking at dependence. So when organisms get exposed to THC or opioids for many days in a row, and then you stop giving them that THC or an opioid, they'll develop withdrawal. And so there's been studies looking at the reciprocity there as well. But with respect to mechanism, as far as I know, it hasn't really been worked out very well. I know that there have been studies looking at the direct effects of, let's say, THC on um, opioid receptors. Um, but the truth is, is that I haven't dug into that literature in a pretty long time, but I do remember that it is pretty scant. And so I don't think that the mechanism has really been worked out yet. Mm -hmm. And one, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this context is abuse potential. So obviously one of the you know, with opioids, they're truly a double-edged sword because they are highly effective for pain management, but they're also among the most addictive substances out there. So can you talk a little bit about uh, abuse potential for opioids in contrast to THC? Um, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about abuse potential. It's one area that I, that I study in all of my investigations. I'm always looking at um, understanding the abuse potential of the cannabinoids that that I test. Um, now, with respect to comparing the opioids to cannabis, it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a it, it, they're they're very different drugs, and there's a very different consequences of use over time. There are similarities. Um, for instance, when you like I just said before when you use opioids chronically for a period of time, there is the development of dependence. And when you stop, then there's withdrawal. Similarly with cannabinoids, this has been worked out in the preclinical literature um, and also in human literature where there is a subset of the population when using with high frequency cannabis or THC, and then, then there's abstinence, there is a withdrawal um, there is a withdrawal, a constellation of withdrawal symptoms. Interestingly, that does not happen with CBD. At least we haven't seen a signal of that yet with CBD. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at abuse liability, one aspect of understanding if cannabinoids or cannabis can substitute, to op can substitute for opioids for pain relief, another interesting aspect to this is can cannabis or cannabinoids also reduce the abuse liability of opioids? Is it possible that we can reduce some of the negative effects of opioids if people still need to take some of the opioids? And that's something that we're looking at. In animal models, there was a really nice um, rodent paper that demonstrated that the addition of THC decreases opioid, what we call self-administration um, in the animal literature. And there's been that's been shown in rodents as well as a one or two studies in non-human primates as well. In people right now, when you're just talking about THC and its ability to decrease the abuse liability of opioids, we don't have data on that yet. There's been some interesting data looking at CBD and its ability to decrease some effects that are associated with 
abuse liability or opioid use disorder. Um, but there haven't been good studies yet in humans looking at this effect. But it's one area that we are probing in this study that we have ongoing at Columbia. Um, and another study where we're looking at um, terpenes as well and how terpenes might also be able to help reduce abuse liability of opioids and increase the pain relieving effects of opioids. Hmm. Which terpenes are you choosing to investigate and, and why did you make the choices you made given the very large amount of, of choice that you had? <laughs> These are good questions. Um, so the terpenes that we chose to look at uh, for this particular grant are beta caryophylline and myrcene. Um, these terpenes are one of the handful of terpenes that are shown to have higher concentrations. Again, still small concentrations in cannabis, but higher concentrations than many, many other terpenes. And there are two terpenes that have nice preclinical data demonstrating that they do have analgesic effects. But interestingly, um, different than opioids and different than THC, you have to give the animal 10 times the dose that produces pain relief to see a psychoactive effect, to see a potentially adverse effect. So these two particular terpenes to me, when I looked at the preclinical literature, there was a pretty strong signal for its pain relieving effects, low signal for psychoactivity. And also what's interesting about these terpenes is that there does seem to be, just like with THC and opioids, there's this bi-directional effect. Mm -hmm. If you look at the animal literature, there's some really interesting elements there that also suggest that these terpenes act in tandem with opioids to produce pain relief. Um, and in fact, beta-caryophylline, there's a study that looked at the synergy between beta-caryophylline and opioids. So it was that one plus one equals three phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so I thought those terpenes were really interesting to probe, given the volume of preclinical, compelling preclinical data. Um, you know, I know that there's interest in other terpenes for other, for other effects, Mm -hmm. um, but when writing this grant and really focusing on pain, it seemed like these terpenes would be most interesting and compelling. Interesting. So what you're, what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is that there is animal literature out there showing a synergistic effect with something like beta-caryophylline, a common canvas terpene, and an opioid drug. Correct. So what, what's kind of What's kind of funny about that is, you know, a really hot idea that people like to talk about in the cannabis world is the entourage effect, where the idea is two or more compounds, say a cannabinoid and a terpene or, or an array of those compounds can have synergistic effects. For the most part, I don't think there's any direct evidence for cannabis-derived cannabinoids and cannabis-derived terpenes definitely having an entourage effect that anyone's proven yet. But there are there is a precedent for this type of thing is what you're telling us. There, there is a precedent, and, and you're right, um, Nick. Over the last year, you know, there have been a couple of studies that have come out that have not been necessarily encouraging about, you know, on a molecular level about the mm -hmm. entourage effect. Um, and we're not necessarily saying that we're looking at the entourage effect itself. We're looking at um, one aspect of this that I didn't mention is that we are combining. We're looking at these terpenes by themselves 
to see what effect they have by themselves, if any, mm -hmm. you know, and given the animal literature, we, we think they might, that's what our hypothesis is, or else we wouldn't do the study. And then we are looking at combinations of these terpenes with different doses of THC. So mm -hmm. a dose of THC that isn't pain relieving in our pain model and isn't intoxicating in our pain model. And so we're mm -hmm. giving the terpene with this low dose of THC to see if maybe there might be a synergistic effect or an additive effect. Mm -hmm. And then we're giving it with a higher dose of THC that's known to produce pain relieving effects and some mild intoxication. Mm -hmm. One thing I didn't know, say about um, beta caryophylline, another kind of intriguing aspect to it is that it's been shown that it acts at the CB2 receptor, as a CB2 receptor agonist. Mm -hmm. And just recently, um, there have been studies looking at its potential in animals mm -hmm. to reduce markers of um, abuse liability in cocaine. There was a nice study that looked at cocaine. It's been looked at for alcohol as well. And so if beta-caryophylline is acting at the CB2 receptor and having this effect to maybe potentially decrease abuse liability of substances, might it be able to reduce the abuse liability of THC? Mm -hmm. Might it be able to reduce the ability, abuse liability of opioids? So there are so many questions to ask. Um, and we are just touching the very, very surface. I mean, it's the first study, I think, in humans to actually look at isolated beta-caryophylline. Um, to the extent that we can isolate it um, in, in people to look at the pain relieving effects and mm -hmm. how it might interact with THC. And we're doing the same thing with mercine as well. We're giving mercine by itself and then mercine combined with a couple of different doses of THC. And then in a second study, we're going to look at the combination of these with opioids. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a complex study. It's going to take a little while to get through, but hopefully, you know, we'll get some signals. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are doing this work. I was unaware of it, actually. What For people who don't know, can you talk about the CB2 receptor? How would you describe that in contrast to CB1? And what do we know about the very basic biology there? So the CB1 receptor is well known to be, first of all, both, both receptors are you know um, heavily populated in the brain. CB2 less so in the brain, unless there is known to be some type of um, neural insult, at least that's what's popular believe, but all over the body across organ systems. Um, CB1 receptor, I believe that it is, it's part of a G protein coupled family. So uh, the dopamine receptors are G protein coupled, serotonin receptors, opioid receptors. And I believe that the CB1 receptor is the most um, prevalent G protein coupled receptor in the brain. So more so than dopamine, more so than opioids, more so than serotonin. Um, so that just demonstrates how it's really, um, it plays a prominent role in behavior, in homeostasis, in stress response, um, given the sheer number of those receptors in the brain. Um, CB2 receptors, and I should say that CB1 receptors are known to be responsible for THC's intoxicating effects, as well as um, its thera their therapeutic effects as well, such as um, pain relief um, and appetite stimulation, for example. 
CB2 receptors are thought to play more a role in immune immunomodulatory functions. Um, and THC actually acts at both CB1 and CB2. We just know more about its effects, or I should say I know more about its effects on, on CB1 than CB2. But when we hear about how cannabinoids are anti-inflammatory, we're usually referring to their effects on the CB2 receptor. Um, the CB2 receptor has been probed for the potential um, to help with abuse liability of substances. And so um, that's kind of how the beta-caryophylline story with mm -hmm. the CB2 receptor comes into play. Interesting. So you've got CB1, CB2. CB1 is mostly in the brain. That's the one that helps get you high, basically. THC binds to <laughs> CB1. That's the intoxicating one. CB2, we're simplifying things a little bit, but CB2 is the anti-inflammatory Receptor. Right. Totally simplifying. Simplifying. I mean, you have CB1 in the body as well, and people mm -hmm. should remember that as well. But when we think about the psychoactive effects, intoxicating effects, that's you know that is happening in the brain. Interesting. So GPCRs, really common receptors. We had a whole episode with Brian Roth. If people want to dig into that more, he he's one of the major GPCR researchers out there, and he talked a lot about that. But one other thing I'm interested for these studies that you're doing, Ziva, is how are you giving these compounds to people? What is the method of consumption for them? And can you help us think about the doses they're taking relative to what someone might be getting if they are smoking a joint, say? So Nick, the questions that you're asking right now are really integral with respect to how we can get these studies done in human researchers. I'm sorry, human volunteers. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I've I've told you a little bit a little bit about terpenes. We have some other studies with compound minor cannabinoids that have not given been given to humans yet. And so, how do we decide how to give this to people where essentially we there haven't been controlled studies yet? Mm -hmm. And what we do is we look at how people are using cannabis in the natural ecology. You know, the common ways that they're using it. And what are the concentrations that they are people are usually exposed to? And so when again you're you're putting you're ha you're administering these compounds for the first time in people by themselves, you don't want to expose people to any um, any increased risk than you know what they're normally being exposed to. And so what we did for these studies is we looked at the lower levels of these terpenes commonly found in cannabis, and then the higher concentrations that are commonly found in cannabis. And in fact, in California, those, those um, concentrations are pretty easy to find. And so we modeled our administration in the laboratory um, to mimic what people are usually exposed to, but we're just taking everything out of the cannabis plant. So we're only looking at the terpenes here. And the mode of administration here, again, because it's the first time that we're looking at these in people, the mode of administration, again, reflects how people most commonly use cannabis, which is through inhalation. Mm -hmm. um, and so for these studies, we're having participants vaporize the terpenes by themselves or in combination with THC. Mm -hmm. um, again, because that's reflecting how people are normally exposed to these chemicals. And then once we have results from the concentrations that we see here and we get signals for safety, you know, tolerability, and maybe even effectiveness for pain, intoxication, cognitive disruption, 
then you can you know be able to start looking at higher doses based off of what you find and also based off of what people are doing so now we're starting to see you know people are using terpenes or minor cannabinoids you know orally so they're taking tinctures or they're drinking this stuff or they're using edibles and so when you see that enough people are exposed to these cannabinoids and terpenes on a on a regular basis it allows you to safely look at them in the lab as well. Interesting. No, I'm glad you're doing it that way. You're not giving astronomical doses that aren't relevant to what people are exposed to when they're choosing to go out and, and use some of these products. And I'm, I'm going to be really excited to see what comes out of these. Um, I, I actually wasn't aware. I know that um, there's at least one group in Hopkins doing some of these co-administration studies where they're giving two or more compounds at once. And I think there's just a fascinating area to think about this interactive synergistic potential for different compounds. Yeah. Yeah. We have a similar study that just recently got funded. It's not approved yet, um, but we're excited to get this study started and it's looking at cannabigerol. Mm -hmm. So CBG, which is a minor cannabinoid that's on people's radar now. Um, you know, you, you see articles about it every single day on the media and we're looking at CBG as well by itself and in combination with THC. We're looking at its pain relieving effects as well as its appetite stimulating effects um, because it seems like in animal models, it is a appetite stimulant, which is useful for certain patient populations. Mm -hmm. So one other area I'm interested in, and I guess just staying with the studies that you're doing, how are you thinking about uh, the kinds of people you're recruiting for these studies. And in particular, I'm interested in two dimensions of variability. One is sex. So how men and women might actually be affected differently by these compounds. And the other one is age, how relatively old versus relatively young individuals might be differently affected. So Nick, this is, you hit on two important points here because we're seeing that in the past, men outweighed women with respect to cannabis use two to one. Over the last couple of years, we're starting to see that gender gap narrow quite a bit, especially with respect to medical use, where in many surveys, females and males are equal with respect to their medical cannabis use. And for certain indications, for instance, like fibromyalgia, clearly there's going to be more females than males because that's a uh, fibromyalgia more likely affects women than, than men. And then with respect to the age aspect, um, I think the latest statistic or a statistic that was cited a couple of years ago, it demonstrated that there has been a, a over 400% increase of cannabis use in the population of 55 years and older. And that's not going to be going away anytime soon. We know that older people are turning to cannabis for medical purposes and also for non-medical purposes. And the number of controlled studies where people looked at the safety and the potential effectiveness of cannabis and cannabinoids in older populations, I think might be one at this point. I think there's been one study looking at this. And so that's definitely an area that needs to be assessed. And also thinking about the animal literature for both of these, both um, how does cannabis and cannabinoids differ between men and women, um, as well as um, older populations. If you look at the animal literature, there's really strong evidence showing that age and sex 
strongly impact the outcomes or the effects of THC, at least THC, if others haven't been studied. I think CBD has been studied as well with respect to age at this point. Mm -hmm. So we have a grant right now that's looking at um, differences between men and women and how um, sex plays a role both with respect to the negative effects of cannabis. So like you mentioned, abuse liability, intoxication, cognitive impairment, as well as the therapeutic effects. Um, and what's interesting is when you do look in the animal literature and you see really nice data showing that female animals are much more sensitive than males on a host of endpoints for THC's effects, including pain relief, as well as the negative effects. So um, female animals are much more sensitive than males. Um, and so we're going to be testing that in our, in our laboratory. Um, another important point, Nick, is not just sex and age, but also chronicity of use. So how often are people mm. using? We know that people develop tolerance. Tolerance development is true for a number of psychoactive substances. Um, so this is true as well for cannabis. And if you look at sex-dependent effects, we see that although females in the animal laboratory, females are much more sensitive to THC's effects when you first give it to them. But after about a week or two or three of exposure, Females develop tolerance at a much faster rate than males. So they won't show pain relief after three weeks of administration mm. to that dose that you used on day one, whereas the males will still show that pain relief. And this is something that we've shown about a couple of years ago in our laboratory where we recruited females who are daily cannabis users, people who use cannabis daily, males and females. And we found that in males, when they used cannabis with THC, we saw pain relief. In females, we did not see any pain hmm. relief in that population. And so we're looking to see if this is indicative of females across the board, or is it because these were people who are using cannabis daily? So we're interested in looking at people who don't use cannabis daily, who maybe use it once a week or once a month, and comparing them to these daily cannabis users. And we're looking at a number of variables. We're looking to see if hormones might contribute to these differences. We're looking at endocannabinoid levels, so your body's natural cannabinoids and how that might also um, mm -hmm. alter the effects. And so that's, I think, a really important area of interest that has grown, um, there's been increasing interest about it just Again, because the fact that more women are turning to cannabis and cannabinoid-based products for medical indications, and we know very little about differences between men and women in this area. Mm -hmm. And what are what are the signals we're seeing in the animal literature for the effect of age? Um, so the effect of age, I think that one impressive study that always comes to mind uh, when I think about when I first realized how age plays such an important factor in this, there was a study, I think it was might've been three years ago, um, where the researchers, I think it was like in nature of medicine, mm -hmm. um, the researchers had adolescent rats and then they had like elderly rats and they exposed both groups of rats um, to chronic THC administration, the same dose 
mm-hmm. both groups. So like every single day they're giving them THC. Every single day. In fact, this was like round the clock. I think they were inserted with pellets that had like a time release, one of those time release ones. And at the end of, you know, a week or two weeks, they looked at some markers of memory and attention that you can look at in animals. And what they found is that in the adolescent rats that were given the THC, they showed decrements in the memory and the attention, Mm -hmm. all those markers of like cognition. So the animals that had been, you know, exposed to THC every day had much poorer performance Mm -hmm. than animals that hadn't been in the adolescent group. And when they measure them, they're actually, there's no THC in the system, right? So they're, they're seeing a decrement after they're given chronic THC, but, but they're tested without THC in the system. You know what? I, that's a good point, Nick. I have to look back at that, but that's a very important point. Um, and maybe you remember this paper as well. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it was. So, okay. So then, <laughs> so then, but then in the older group, and again, you can correct me if, if, you, if I'm misremembering, in the older group of animals, they actually showed that compared to the elderly animals that didn't get the THC, they had improved you know, measures of cognition. Um, and so when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is really interesting how you can get such diverse effects just due to age. Mm-hmm. And since then, there have been some other studies looking at you know, ultra low doses of THC administration in older animals and how that impacts inflammatory responses and cognitive responses. Um, so there have been a couple of really notable findings, I think, in the animal literature that are compelling enough to look at, um, you know, these effects in, in older human adults. Yeah, no, that, that paper was very striking. It, uh, just to summarize everything, essentially, you give THC for a month to young and old rodents, and you more or less get the opposite effect. And it, it was just quite striking. I think they actually are doing or at least planning to do clinical trials in elderly humans where they're going to be looking to see if low doses of THC improve cognition, which again is the opposite of what you tend to see in younger individuals. Exactly. So what is, do you have anything else going on in your lab in particular, or did you, or the studies you described, uh, what you're mainly focused on right now? Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of really exciting studies going on. So we have a, a bunch of studies looking at these opioid sparing effects of cannabis constituents. We have these sex-dependent sparing effects, or, I'm sorry, sex-dependent effects of THC of cannabis um, among males and females. We have a study looking at the potential anti-inflammatory effects of cannabis use in people with HIV. Um, and so that's also an interesting story that's kind of born out of preclinical research. So um research with non-human primates. Mm-hmm. And that is not a placebo-controlled study. That's um, an observational study where we're, we're looking at markers of inflammation um, in people with HIV who are using cannabis and not using cannabis, and also trying to figure out if how people are using cannabis might impact um, uh, inflammatory markers, anti-inflammatory markers. So that's exciting. And then I've also branched out and I'm doing some stuff with some public policy people, which is interesting, a kind of a different wheelhouse. And then lastly, we have studies in patient populations as well. Um, so we have a double blind placebo controlled study looking at CBD for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so, you know, there's been one interesting study 
looking at the combination of THC and CBD in people with uh, rheumatoid arthritis over five weeks. That was somewhat encouraging. Um, and so now we're going to be looking at, we did not do that study. Um, that was study was done in about 2006. Um, and now we're looking just at CBD in part because um, we think that based on animal literature, CBD might be anti-inflammatory. Um, and so we're looking at a couple of different doses of CBD compared to placebo over 12 weeks. So mm -hmm. it's a good chunk of time to be able to see a signal. And then we have some other um, um, patient studies that are, are percolating where we're working on our approvals for those mm -hmm. as well. Well, this is perfect. I wanted to ask you a variety of things about CBD. It's an interesting molecule. It's still quite mysterious. And it's obviously, you know, a major part of popular consciousness right now. You can go to the corner store, you know, Bartels or Walgreens, and, you know, people are essentially putting CBD in everything. So for the study that you mentioned, you mentioned you're testing two different doses. In general, my understanding of the CBD literature is that when we give CBD to people and it has a bona fide effect of some kind, we're typically giving them a very large dose. So what do we know about bioavailability? What kind of doses are you using? And how should we... It, ultimately, I want you to get to talk, talking to people about how likely is it that taking 5 or 10 milligrams of CBD in a product that you bought actually doing anything? So Nick, thank you for that. Um, and this is another point that I drive home to people is that not only do we have very few studies with CBD by itself for all the indications that people are using it, but the studies that we do have that have shown promise have been using whopping doses compared to what people can get at dispensaries. Mm -hmm. So typically on the high end of CBD concentrations that you can get at dispensaries, at least in Los Angeles, 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams, the doses that have shown a positive signal in the few clinical studies that have been done have been 400 milligrams, 800 milligrams, 1200 milligrams. Those are high doses. And if you were to actually to get those doses from dispensaries, you'd be breaking the bank, right? I mean, they're, they're super high doses per day. And you asked about, you know, how we're figuring out the doses for our rheumatoid arthritis study. And essentially, you know, when you write a proposal and you know, you're trying to look at an effect that hasn't been studied yet in, in the laboratory under rigorous situations, you have to go to the literature and you have to determine your doses based off of what's been done in the past for safety reasons. So you can make sure that the doses that you're giving are actually safe in the populations that it's been studied in before. And also just to know that it's shown some positive impact on the endpoints that have been tested in the past. And so we're basing our doses off of the literature that has shown that it, under certain circumstances, a dose of cannabidiol might have anti-anxiety effects. And so those are high doses, you know, mm -hmm. 600 milligrams, um, 800 milligrams, if you're looking at the opioid study. Um, and with respect to safety as well. And so we're using high doses for those studies. Um, one aspect of, you know, one thing you asked about was bioavailability, mm -hmm. which I think is an important component to this and why the doses are usually so high. So we know that the bioavailability of CBD can be as low as 6% when given orally. 
So that means that if you are taking 100 milligrams, only six milligrams of that will be bioavailable. Um, and that can have all types of you know, downstream effects, including the fact that if CBD is working, you need so much of it just to get into your system and to have an effect. And also you have to think about, as been shown in the past, that when you're taking this much drug, what kind of impact is it going to have on, let's say, the liver, the liver that is processing all of this stuff? And we know that high doses can have some negative impact on, on the liver. And that's, that's also really important to note. With respect to the products that people are getting in the dispensaries, like you said, they're five milligrams, 10 milligrams, or at the general health food stores, do these have an effect? So based off of what we've seen in the literature where you need 300 milligrams, 600, 800 milligrams, one would think that you know 10 milligrams, what kind of an effect would that have? In fact, um, there have been very few studies looking at these very low doses that people are using. Now, just because we don't have good data on those low doses doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't work. It doesn't do something mm -hmm. both on the safety side as well as the potential effectiveness side. If somebody's taking 10 milligrams, 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams every day for a year, what are the outcomes of that exposure every single day? And the truth is at this point, we don't know. And part of the question also is, what type of product is it? Um, you know, they have all these companies now are trying to make CBD products that have increased bioavailability. There have been some studies, one came out recently showing that some of these preparations do enhance bioavailability. So are people taking these types of products that have enhanced bioavailability and what are the outcomes? And the truth is that we really don't know. At this point, the products that are available there's, there isn't really oversight for them. So the FDA isn't testing those products. So we actually don't know the long-term or short-term impact of taking these products that are, like you said, they're available at your corner store. They're available at Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, so there's, there's really a lot of unknowns at this point. Mm -hmm. Two areas I wanted to ask you about in terms of where the evidence is are inflammation and anxiety. I think everyone everyone who's interested in CBD has probably at least heard about what's happened for epilepsy with Epidiolex. So if you don't know about that, I'll just encourage people to go, to go read about that elsewhere. But what do we know for CBD in terms of anti-anxiety effects and inflammation effects? You've, you've touched on both, but, but what's been nailed down so far? Um, I want to touch on the anti-inflammatory components first, because I think that it's natural for people to say that CBD is an anti-inflammatory. It's like, mm. at this point, it's like a, a given. Yep. Um, but for me, uh, and I do not know the literature through and through, but aside from one study um, that was not a controlled drug administration study, or maybe I think there might be two studies now that have shown some decrease in markers associated with inflammatory response in people that have used CBD. Um, so I don't think that we actually have a good handle on this yet. And I don't, I don't think that people have looked at this in patient populations. People haven't really looked at CBD in many patient populations, periods. And I, I haven't seen 
studies that have rigorously assessed markers of inflammation in these patient studies. I think in animal studies, we have some really nice compelling data, but we haven't yet translated that to humans. Um, so when I hear people say CBD is anti-inflammatory, in my head, I think that they're really pulling from the strong animal literature and, and uh, molecular literature at this point. And this is an area that also we hope to try and fill at UCLA um, mm -hmm. and do the studies to actually determine if that's, if that's really an effect. Now, anxiety, we talked about how pain is one of the primary reasons why people use CBD. Anxiety, I think, is the second reason. Pain, anxiety, sleep, right? So people are using CBD for anxiety. Now, does it do, does it help with anxiety? When you ask people in a survey data, they'll self-report to say that, yes, it's helpful. Um, and what about the rigorous placebo-controlled studies? So this is an area that there have actually been a handful of studies looking at CBD compared to placebo for anxiety. And up until about a year ago, these studies were just looking at one dose of CBD and how it might impact certain aspects of anxiety. If you think about somebody who has anxiety, they're not necessarily taking a therapeutic just one time. Mm -hmm. Right. So people frequently, if they have generalized anxiety disorder, other types of anxiety disorders, they're usually taking these medications, you know, every day for an extended period of time. So up until a year ago, we didn't really have good data about what happens when people use this regularly or for a week or for a month. Um, and just this past year, there have been some studies that have come out that have looked at the effects of using CBD for a week on some measures of anxiety. Um, there was even one study that had participants use cannabidiol for a month. And at the end of the month, they looked at measures of anxiety. And so there have been positive signals, but I will say uh, we, based off of how many people might be using this for anxiety, a whole range of anxiety disorders or different types of anxiety, um, different doses, we still know very little about this. Um, and I think that I think that um, it's a promising area. I know that there is a certain subset of people who do not respond to traditional pharmacotherapies that help with anxiety. So we are in need of another pharmacotherapy to help treat with anxiety treat anxiety. And if CBD offers a potentially safe way to help with anxiety that doesn't have some of the adverse effects that other pharmacotherapeutic agents have, then that would be great. But we're still, I think, pretty far away from saying with certainty that CBD is helpful for anxiety at this dose or this dose or this dose. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you too about some of the research mechanics and rules involved in doing this type of work. So on the very front end, you mentioned that part of your role at UCLA is just getting all of this whole structure up and running, including how to get funding. And so where is the funding coming from to do this kind of work? And how difficult when you're working with THC is it to actually get this research going given the schedule one status of THC? There are a number of barriers to getting this research up and running. And you hit on one very important barrier, and that is the Schedule One status of THC. 
but it certainly isn't the only barrier. You also mentioned funding. Where do we get money to look at the therapeutic effects of cannabis and cannabinoids? This is not an area that traditionally the NIH has supported. Now that has changed to some degree. And in fact, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, is even funding some of these studies looking at the therapeutic effects of cannabis and cannabinoids. So that's kind of remarkable. National Institute on Drug Abuse was the main institute of the NIH that funds the studies to look at the adverse effects of cannabis and cannabinoids, but now they are looking at this plant and the chemicals in the plant as potential therapeutics for a range of indications. Um, so that's encouraging. There are other institutes in the NIH that are also involved with this. So I mentioned this grant that I have looking at terpenes um, in combination with THC. And that study is you know, a study probing the therapeutic effects and it's funded by a part of the institute called, a part of the National, the National Institutes of Health called the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, NCCIH. And so they have a line of funding that is dedicated to this. So we're starting to see that funding is starting to free up a little bit at the NIH. But in general, funding is very competitive at the NIH level. It's about 18% of applications will get funded. And so it's hard. It's hard to get a study funded. You have to know what you're doing. If you are somebody who's just getting into this field and hasn't been doing this work before, it's very difficult to get a grant funded because there's a question of feasibility. Are you going to be able to get through all this red tape, like you said, that is associated with a Schedule One status? With respect to funding, also, there have been other encouraging, um, you know, silver linings for the... Well, it's not silver lining. I mean, just in general, it's positive. We're starting to see increased support from states. So in the state of California, there is the um, California state-funded uh, Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. And so they specifically fund studies to California-based researchers looking at the therapeutic effects of cannabis and cannabinoids. The, those um, funding dollars are even more competitive than NIH. Okay, so it's even harder to get that grant. Um, and again- Is, is that taxpayer it, money? Yeah, it's from it's it's from sales. Yeah, and um, it was written into the bill um, back also when when medical cannabis was regulated, and then again um, when adult use cannabis became regulated or legalized. Um, but again, if you don't very competitive, if you haven't delved into this field before, you have to have a mentor or you have to know somebody who can help you guide guide you through all these processes, okay? So there's the funding issue. Then there's the schedule one status issue where if you're going to deal with cannabis or THC, unless there is a type of THC that is not schedule one. So you can get um, oral capsules or a oral solution that is synthetic THC that is FDA approved. And so that's schedule two or schedule three. So you don't have to worry about the schedule one. But anything else, cannabis or THC totally by itself, like the way we use it in our lab, is Schedule 1. Now, in order to get your Schedule 1 license, you have to, first, you have to have a protocol, by the way. You have to have a protocol where you need to use cannabis, okay? So you can't just go to the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, and say, I want a Schedule 1 license. 
you have to say, you have to show them that you have a reason for it. In order to have a reason for it, think about what you need. In order to have a, a study proposal, you need a month, you need money, you need funding for that study proposal, right? So, you know, you get back to that funding issue. Once you have funding or support from your institution and they say, okay, here's $100,000, you can do whatever kind of study you want. Studies do not cost $100,000, they're a lot more money than that. But then you need to have a facility, you need to have a space where you can store your schedule of material that mm -hmm. also requires funding because you need to have all types of security. You need to have the space. You need to have a space where nobody else is going into, only the person that has a schedule and license and who's on that schedule and license. So you need a lot of institutional support for this. Hmm. Um, I'm lucky when I came to UCLA, well, I, I explained to them, I'm like, the only way that I can do this work is if I have institutional support, is if you give me a space where I can put the drug in a very secure setting. Um, and I also need a letter from you saying that you support this work. Um, so you get your DEA license. It, you need an approved protocol from the IRB with the funding. You need a product that can be studied in humans, okay, safely. And so I'm going to get to that in a minute. But getting the whole Schedule One license, it takes a very long time to, to obtain. And that length of time can vary based off of what state you're in, um, based off of how communicative your DEA office is. So there's that, and we can talk about, we can, we can have a whole two hour segment on that. A third main barrier that people forget about is again, one that I just alluded to in that the product that I give to people or that we give to people as researchers, it has to meet a certain standard. It has to meet FDA standard for quality control, okay? So for example, even if cannabis wasn't schedule one anymore, even if THC wasn't Schedule 1, for example, hemp-derived CBD, which is no longer classified as a Schedule 1 substance. So I can get CBD anywhere. Why can't I just go down to um, Whole Foods and get whatever CBD supplement they're selling there and then give it to my participants? You can't do that because for our studies to get approval, I have to submit my protocol and a very a detailed description about the product I am using to the FDA. And the FDA has to approve it and they have to see that the study product that you're using is stable over a period of time, doesn't have a certain amount of heavy metals or pesticides, that you know the certificate of analysis that comes with it is actually correct, that it's 100% CBD and no THC. And it's really hard to find that product. I mean, I think that that is probably the toughest thing, toughest part of doing this work is actually identifying where I can get my study drug from. And also, wherever I get my study drug from, they also have to be able to give me a placebo, mm -hmm. right? If I'm doing a placebo-controlled study, I need a placebo as well. So that is a significant limitation that I think often goes overlooked when we talk about limitations and barriers to this work in the United States because we automatically think about the schedule one issue as being a huge barrier and it is, but the other barriers are also really important. Mm -hmm. Where do you get your CBD from? So, um, I, I have hunted for different companies that can really help me and support me through this FDA process and are, will commit to say that they can give me the product for X, Y, and Z study and a matching placebo. 
And that's an integral component to these grants that I write. For example, you know, if you're going to put in a grant for funding and the funding is really competitive, you better show reviewers that you know where you're getting your, your drug product from because that's a major limitation. So I, I do have some sources that, that can provide me with that information that I need for the FDA. And we work together. I mean, it's not, um, it's, it's a difficult process. Same thing with the THC. The THC that I get, I have to work with a company and they have to be very generous with their time and their documentation. Um, and so, you know, it, it's interesting because you get to know another part of this uh, field of work that isn't necessarily what, what I'm trained to do. Um, mm -hmm. So it's been fascinating and also kind of fun as well. Interesting. So you mentioned that $100,000 wasn't enough. And for non-scientists, I actually think it's it's helpful to get a sense of what we're talking about here. So assuming all of the infrastructure is in place, assuming you've got all your approvals, how many people are in some of the studies you're running and what's the order of magnitude for the cost there? How much is it to do a study with X number of people? So Nick, it, it really depends on what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my studies require us to draw blood from people so I can see what are those levels of CBD once they take it? Or what mm -hmm. are those levels of THC or terpenes in their blood? And when you're drawing blood, you're looking at lots of different time points after the drug is administered. So let's say 10 different time points, eight different time points. And then that blood has to get analyzed by a specialist using specialized equipment. And so those types of analyses are very expensive. They're very, very informative and they're important, but they're very expensive. Um, I will put this out there. I, I don't, you know, every lab has a different budget scheme and you have to have personnel to be able to run the study. You have to have a nurse, you have to have research assistants and the, all these people have to get paid. Um, and so different labs have different types of needs. I will say that in general, uh, the NIH budget is usually capped at, at about $500,000 a year. And so a lot of the studies that we do are about five years. Okay, so you can imagine sometimes that cap is reached, sometimes it, is it, it isn't reached. Um, for my studies, because they're very intense studies where people come in several times and they're getting their blood drawn several times, they're not large studies at all. For example, I'll enroll, I'll screen 60 people, get 30 people in. Um, so they're not large studies. Other studies, when you're working with patient populations and you have to enroll hundreds of people, you know, 200 people, that can be enormously expensive, you know, 5 million, 10 million. Um, so these aren't cheap. Um, it's different, you know, industry also does these types of studies um, and they have, I think, different um, endpoints that they need to reach. Um, and so, there's other costs that are entailed with those types of industry studies. Uh, our studies are not nearly as expensive because you know most of what I'm doing is that I'm doing you know, scientific investigations. I'm not looking to develop a new drug for a new indication. They're really to understand what do these terpenes do in people? You know, We know this in, in animals, what do they do in people? Can that be translated to a patient population? Um, so, so they can be very expensive, but you know, you just think about the number of people that have to work on a study and you think mm -hmm. about what their salaries are and it gets to be, gets to be hefty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not just you and a postdoc doing some work. It's, it's a network <laughs> of people doing hundreds or thousands of hours of work. Exactly. Yeah. 
So what are you most excited about in cannabis research generally? What do you think is on the horizon that we'll get an answer to in the next year or two, say? So, okay, year two. Oh my goodness. I thought you were going to say five or 10 years. I'll give you five. I'll give you five. The next few years. Okay. So I, I think some exciting things for me are obvious ones that we've already talked about. So this issue about CBD, um, seven, one out of seven adults are using it for all these different indications. When you talk to a scientist or somebody who's in this area, you know, we'll throw up our hands and be like, we, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, we just really don't know at this point. In five years, there are so many studies happening right now across the globe. We are going to have a much better sense about what CBD can do and cannot do. Again, I think based off of preclinical literature, there is potential, huge potential for this, um, for cannabidiol, but we have yet to see this potential borne out in, in human studies yet. And so I think that we'll be able to see that in human studies. Like you said before, it's a really messy drug. It has tens, if not hundreds of targets. Um, and we don't understand its mechanism. And I think that on the preclinical and molecular side, we're going to see a lot more of that being fleshed out, if possible. I mean, there's so many different ways and pathways that it can work on. So that will be really interesting. I think that we talked about these drug combinations or, or cannabinoid component combinations. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that work being done, um, which will also be really exciting. And what's interesting is that that work, I think, is really being pushed by the emerging products, the, the popularity of some of these emerging products. For instance, CBG or like, you know, the Delta 8 THC, everybody's talking about Delta 8 THC. We, there are a couple of studies in humans, but they haven't been done in like 20 years. All of a sudden, you know, people are using Delta ATHC. We got to know what it does. And so there is this interesting cycle here where although the emerging products and the industry isn't being pushed by science, it is helping to propel science and scientific questions. So there, I, I think that we have our work cut out for us for decades, and we will definitely be learning more about minor cannabinoids and terpenes and the combination of the two. Um, there are also one, one area that we haven't focused on very much, Nick, is the endocannabinoid system and therapeutics that um, are leveraging the endocannabinoid system that are showing promise right now in some studies. I think that again, in five years, we're going to see um, a lot of studies in this area. Um, we're already starting to see some, some studies in this area where we're looking at the endocannabinoid system in general and how we can modulate the endocannabinoid system for some therapeutic endpoints. So moving a little bit away from the plant, right, and thinking about the biology. Um, I think those are some really exciting areas. Interesting. Well, yeah, this is an exciting area for me, obviously. Um, I'm really interested in all this stuff. Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave people with who are following this type of research or just generally interested in the medical potential of cannabis? Um. I think some final thoughts would be is that, uh, or what are that, um, for me, I have, I have found that this community talking to other scientists in the field, whether they're in academia, whether they're not in academia, as well as hearing from community about 
the interests that they have or learning from their experiences has really been instrumental in shaping my journey over the last 10 years. And I, I don't think I necessarily had that early on in my professional career, scientific career. Maybe it's because I was, you know, in graduate school as a postdoc, but I have to say that um, learning from the community and being able to have a dialogue. I mean, there's a lot of like heated debates on several different topics around the cannabis, but in general, it has been really refreshing to be able to have open dialogue about what we know, what we don't know, where the interests lie, and also from learning from each other about these about these areas. Um, I will say that you know, in general, um, I. I always stress the importance of really relying on the data that's coming out and not going to the media. You know, you see a splashy news headline and, you know, you're quick to say, okay, CBD is going to help the, you know, COVID infection rates. And, you know, you see that, okay, well, what does that study say? Where has it been published? You know, has it been peer reviewed? Really, not taking the headlines for face value and doing a little bit of the work, doing a little bit of the work to kind of dig deeper, to try and really understand what is underneath those headlines, both for positive reasons and negative reasons as well. And so, you know, it takes work to do that, but at the same time, it's also really fun. I mean, not a day goes by where I feel like I don't learn something in this field, both from media um, and, and the community and with people who are experts in the field. So mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's a wonderful community all around. Can I sneak one more question in? Sure. So one thing that's very difficult, I, I don't really know what the answer to this is. If you're not a scientist, but you're interested in this stuff or, or some other field that we could think about analogously, and there are all of these media articles coming out with a huge variability in the quality of those articles in terms of their accuracy and, and how well they're respecting what was actually done in the studies. You know, in, in some ways, people who aren't scientists have little more to rely on than what they see in the media. So how would you recommend that someone who isn't a scientist take that extra step to dig deeper? What's, what are some potential strategies there? So, you know, one thing I always look for when I see a big media headline um, is, and I'm a scientist, so I'm trained to look for this. But first, what was the species, you know, that was used in the study? All right. So frequently headlines like CBD is anti-inflammatory. Um, frequently, the headlines are made from studies that aren't necessarily being translated to humans. All right. So I think that that's really important for people to understand. A cell is not a mouse, is not a rat, is not a monkey, is not a human. Okay, so the translation is critical. I'm not saying that there can't be a lot of promise from studies in, uh, in non-humans, but it's really important to put that in context. So that's the first thing. Does the media piece address that? Really important. Second thing, does the media piece actually give readers the link to the article? So frequently, I, it's mind-boggling how often you see that these splashy headlines, and then they don't even have the link to the article. Mm -hmm. And that is really important. Even if you get the article and you find that it's very difficult to get through, then that's one thing. Um, sometimes you can even glean just from the part, first part of the article, the abstract, where it talks about you know, some of the results in more common language. At least you can look at the abstract then. Third is 
what perspectives are being offered in that article? Are there being are there perspectives from the author? Are there from the of the of the study? Are there perspectives from people outside of the author's institution? And I think that's also really important to attend to. But I agree with you, Nick. Some, sometimes it's really hard to get through these articles, if the studies, if you can find them. But I think an interesting thing that I see happening, I, I, unfortunately, I don't have so much time these days, but on Twitter, I do see that there is considerable effort from um, researchers and academics to explain what the studies findings are and really what the take home points are. Now, of course, the people who you're looking at on social media, they also have biases. So you have to keep that in mind. But if you're if if a number of people are talking about a similar paper, then hopefully you can cobble together, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of what people in the field actually think about that particular study. Mm -hmm. So I think I heard three things there, three tips or three practices for anyone, but but in particular, a non-scientist. One, if you're reading a headline article, look to see if it was done in humans or non-humans, and at least be mindful of that and pay attention to whether or not the journalist was making that clear. The second thing is to look to see if they're linking to the original study. And if, if they're not, then that's a highly suspicious thing. And if they are, the last thing would be you can look at the study and you don't need to read the whole study because you, you might not have the time or the inclination to do that. But just that first paragraph, if you can read that one paragraph and, and just sit down and patiently read that, you can probably learn a lot about whether or not the article is actually true to the underlying study. Is that's that great? Great. Um, awesome. Great tips. Thank you for your time, Ziva. Um, I think your research is really exciting. Um, at some point, I hope I can get down to UCLA after the the COVID situation is over and get out of the cloudy weather up here in Seattle. Um, so I'm a little jealous that you have that. But thank you for your time, and and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much, Nick. This was lovely. Thank you.